The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a, manger, uh, who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted so shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in, a very, in very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that that belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite the congregation to be seated. So, several weeks ago, when we began this run in Luke, I, I began by saying that these, these Luke and Gospel texts begin with words of grace, and then they, they become warnings. But in the warnings are contained grace. And this text, I think, follows that pretty well, in part because it's probably, uh, among all the pastors that I know, one of our least favorite ones to preach on, because it's the most... It's probably one of the most confusing parables in the entire gospel. And the reason is that most of the time when we hear a parable, which in some ways are morality stories, in other ways are stories that describe what the kingdom of God is about, and in other ways, even though they might be a little bit cryptic, they do tend to help us understand the ethic of what it means to live in, in the reign of God. This particular parable is tricky, because it, it seems to, and maybe it doesn't just seem to, it, but does commend someone for doing something that most of the world will consider to be a little shady. It begins with a manager of, of debt, maybe, I don't think he's a banker, but probably someone who's in accounts receivable on a farm, it sounds like. And when he finds out that, the, that his master, and it is master, and the verb of how he works for them is enslaved, and so it is someone who's a slave who's being taken out of one area of work and put into another area of work, which is part of why he's so worried about maybe they'll make me dig because I don't have a good back and I can't somehow leave and beg. And so somehow I have to figure out how to make this so that it doesn't end up as my ruin. And he does something that I think in our culture would probably be illegal. 
by taking the debts that are owed to the farm and telling the people who are in debt to them to change their debts. And so this is a story maybe of dubious morality. And, and so it's hard to make it a, an ethical story. This is, a, this is a story that contains relationships between a slave and a master that make us very uncomfortable in today's society because we, we really don't have that. Or at least we, we like to pretend that we don't have people who are working in conditions that seem to force them to continue there. We, we also have a hard time doing another thing that people like to do during parables, which is drawing an analog of where God is in this parable versus where God is not in this parable. Because a master who has slaves is an awfully challenging person to relate as God. Someone who takes another person's wealth and handles it in a way that is dishonest. It's hard to imagine setting that person up as God. It's hard to set God up as the ones who owe things but yet have some of their debts forgiven. And so this parable, in terms of nice, excuse me, nice, clean, easy preaching, is challenging. And uh, I'm going to offer a sort of odd interpretation of this one right now. Because it's, it's one that comes to mind as, as we begin over the next couple weeks, our stewardship program. Next week, we have, you're going to start seeing trees, and you're going to start hearing people talk about the ministries of this congregation. We're going to talk about how to use our time and our talents and resources. And even though this is a challenging gospel text, I think it's also a really fabulous one to begin thinking about what does it mean? to live our lives in a way that we dedicate everything that we have to the God that we serve, whether it be our time and the way we use our time to do the things that matter, or our talents and the ways that we learn new ways to do things so that we might support not just this congregation and each other, but the entire sphere of our lives and how do we use our resources so that everything that we do then goes to benefit the, the purposes and the practices and the goals of God's kingdom. And so how does this parable go about that? I think one of the ways that we get into that is through verse 13, which is no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Another way to translate that is the word mammon, which is sort of that idea of the stuff that we crave, the stuff that we cling to, the stuff that gets in the way of our true values. Mammon is sort of representative of the goals of the world, the goals of our jobs, the goals of all those things that are gained or that are geared toward gaining things. And so what this says to us is we cannot serve the idea of getting more, more, more. The idea of hoarding what we have so that we can have more, more, more. The idea of being selfish with our time so that when it comes to fun or when it comes to things that are wasteful pursuits, or when it comes to only things that benefit us, if we're always looking for more, 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 all of these desires to constantly hoard what rightfully belongs to God is an indicator of who we serve. If all we're looking for is more, then we cannot serve that desire and the calling of God in our lives. That's what this really gets to. So, what I'd like to offer is a little bit different perspective where instead of anyone really representing God, it more represents the attitude of God 
toward this idea that all we always need is more. And we go to Amos to look at this. Woe to you who trample on the poor. We, we see all throughout Scripture this idea that the poor are the people who will receive the blessing of God. And it's not that having nothing in and of itself is necessarily holy. But we see among people who have very little something that we don't always see among the ultra-rich. And that's the willingness to share everything that they have. I remember, you know, and I think one of the reasons I remember college so fondly, and a lot of us remember college fondly, or our youngest adult years when we're still trying to make it, and we don't necessarily have our own, but we get together with other people, and together we have more. In community, we find something that we don't necessarily have on our own, which is simply enough. In, in community, we find something that we can't provide for ourselves, which is a group of people who understand us, who care about us for who we are. And, and there is a quality to those friendships in our young lives, I think, precisely because very few of us have enough. But together we find that what we need versus what we want are two very different things. And I, I think this is one of the reasons as we get into our later 20s and our 30s and beyond, it becomes a lot more challenging to make friends, to keep friends, to find people to socialize with outside of the places where we normally are. And it's because as we get a little bit older, we become a little more stable. We have enough on our own. We don't necessarily need to seek out community in the same way a lot of times. We don't necessarily need the support of others in our daily lives. And so we begin to choose people who sort of mirror what we're already doing. And we have our work friends. We have our church friends. And sometimes we have neighborhood friends. And we have the two or three people who we talk to from our younger lives. But by the time we get into our 40s, I think we all find that our social circles have shrunk a good bit. And as we get even older, and, and we're much better established, most of us, and and we can ignore what's going on in the world around us because we have this buffer around us that keeps us secure from a lot of the things that made us feel unsecure as younger, less, less you know, financially secure people. We find as we get older, our circle shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And I think a lot of this does have to do with our financial security. Now, I'm not saying financial security in and of itself is a bad thing. But what I am saying is this, in a world where I know at least I grew up hearing the message, what you really want is more. You want to make sure that you have enough for this and enough for that. You want to make sure that you have not only enough, but what if you had more than that? You know, if you just invest X amount, then you can have millions of dollars by the time you retire. And don't get me wrong, I would love to have the problems that come with having millions of dollars. I am not going to lie and say that I wouldn't. But... One of the problems that comes with that isn't a problem that we would, we would expect. It's the problem that security brings isolation. And sometimes that kind of security also brings a reduction of our empathy for those who have less. Because what does our culture tell us about those who have less? Some of the big arguments about having a social safety net are... Well, if we provide something for people who are poor, then they won't, have any, they won't have any gumption to work. You know, if they have everything to lose, then all of a sudden they'll feel like they want to do more. And all of a sudden we take whether or not we have money and turn it from something that's an economic issue and make it into a moral issue. 
Because all of a sudden, our culture tells us to look up to the people who are wealthy because obviously they have worked harder than everyone else and look down upon the people who are poor because obviously they are lazy. And yet, woe to you who trample on the poor is one of the most prevalent messages throughout the entirety of Scripture. And we see time and time again that God has a preference for those who are lacking, those who are wanting, those who are hurting, those who have nothing. And why? It's not because being poor in and of itself is moral any more than being rich is immoral in and of itself. But again, I believe that it has to do with an understanding of community. And we see what this means and how important it really is and how quickly we can go from someone who feels secure to someone who feels vulnerable through the eyes of this slave who is about to be fired from his job, which has given him some security because he's able to deal with people in terms of their wealth. And so here was someone who was dishonest, and we don't have any illusion that this person was someone who did their job well since he's called dishonest. But here he is realizing that all of a sudden the gravy train is over. What happens? What do I do? What do I need? Well, when our illusions of security are stripped away from us, what we realize we need is what we've known ever since we were children. We need community. We need people who care about us. We need people who will take care of us when we're in need. And so that's where I see this example of the dishonest manager going and reducing debts of the people who owe this farmer debts as something that Jesus says is valuable enough to be praised, partly because the children of, the, of God don't deal as shrewdly as the children of this world, make, means, make wealth for yourself by dishonest means, and this dishonest means is an interesting commentary throughout the message of Jesus because when we see what Jesus says about wealth, Jesus isn't concerned about people keeping their wealth. We had the parable a few weeks ago about the, about the man who had all of a sudden found himself with such an excess of grain he couldn't store it all. And he said to himself, myself, I'm going to build extra granaries so that I can store all of it and then I will be rich for the rest of my life and I'll be able to eat, drink, and be merry and I'll be able to live the easy life and all of a sudden in a dream that God came to him and said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. And it's this message that over and over and over again we see throughout the Gospels that nothing that is material, nothing that is wealth according to the worldly standards is a wealth that will last because it can go just as quickly as it comes. But what does this man do that's relatable and that's, that's even laudable? This dishonest manager then goes and he builds relationships with the people who owe his boss money. And so he goes and he, he cuts one bill in half and one bill by 20%. And what does he know then when he leaves that position? He knows that at least there will be a couple people favorably disposed toward him so that maybe, rather than being in poverty, he can have an opportunity to start not quite from the bottom. And what he's looking for in that point, I don't think anyway, is to necessarily get way ahead. He's just looking for enough. There's, a, there's something holy about seeking enough. We pray in the Lord's Prayer every week, give us this day our daily bread. 
We don't say, Lord, give us enough to last for the rest of the week or the rest of the month. We, we don't say, Lord, give me everything I want. But we do pray that what we need will be provided for. And I, I think as we think about who we are as a church, what our values are as a congregation, what our values are as we think about the way we use our time and our talents and our resources, this becomes such an important idea because it's one that drives against the narrative of scarcity that's so pervasive in our culture. The narrative that if we take our hand or our eye off the forward, then all of a sudden nothing is going to be here. The whole church is going to close. The entire nation is going to shut down. It's a, it's a prayer that prays against the tendency that we have to say, well, I saw a report this week that in a couple of years, Christians in the United States might be a minority rather than the majority. It goes against the, the, this kind of craving we have to look at what might happen that is negative and hurtful and painful and worrisome and instead calls us to look at something different, which is the real value in the kingdom of God, the value of abundance, the, the value that comes to us when we hear the good news that what God calls people to do, God provides. And so we hear the stories over the last couple of weeks of Abram and Sarai being promised that they would have children even though they were childless in their old age. Because what God promises, God provides. We hear the stories of the Israelites wandering through the desert and seeking food and water and nourishment and God providing food and water and nourishment of a people who were, who were moved out of the house of slavery and out of the house of Egypt and into the promised land. Because God promises that this people will have a place and God provides that place. I have never seen a congregation who is working to follow the calling of God that has gone under. Although I've seen congregations who still struggle, who still worry, who still wonder. And that's okay. Because we, all of us in our lives, have had those times where we worry and we wonder and we hope and we wonder how we're going to end up making it from month to month. But you know what we do? We make it from month to month because where we are living, God provides. Give us this day our daily bread and God will. As, as we look at stewardship, it's not just about our budgets. It's not even necessarily about funding our ministries. Stewardship is about the way that we as people of faith respond to the love and the calling that God gives us so that we as people of faith can live out this faith together knowing that together is the only way it can be lived. And while there are going to be lean times and there are going to be times of plenty, give us this day our daily bread is not some fervent hope. It is an article of faith that what God calls us to do, God will provide. And so what we find in this dishonest manager isn't that we should go cheat every account that our boss has for us. That probably will not work out either. But it is a lesson in relationship that even in these financial matters, the real currency isn't money. The real currency is relationship. The real currency is caring for the needs of others. The real currency for all of us in our lives of faith and in our lives at home, in our lives at work, and in our lives in the places we serve, 
is how we interact with and treat the people around us so that what we sow is something that will breed the very generosity that is at the heart of God's kingdom. May we this week sow that which sometimes seems like dishonest wealth, knowing that we're dealing with the only currency God gives us to deal with. Amen.